Hello and welcome back to the Joe's Art History Podcast, a podcast which celebrates all things art historical with me, your host, Joe McLaughlin. On today's episode, I sit down with Alexandra Keeley, who is an art historian and writer based in the United States. Today, Alexandra takes us on a wonderful deep dive down the rabbit hole of all things relating to the incredible Notre Dame Cathedral in Paris. Within the history of the world, Notre Dame is an incredibly important icon, both in culture, literature and film. Alexandra talks us through the history of Notre Dame, the changing views it's had over the years, as you'll be surprised to hear it hasn't always been held in such high regard. We of course have to discuss the fire which tore through it in 2019, which saw millions of people around the world devastated, but also how many people came together to donate, and as well as the conservation efforts of what is happening now on site at the cathedral. It's a fantastic conversation and I just have to thank Alexandra for giving us such a deep dive into the incredible history of this building and it really opened my eyes to a lot of incredible things and the show notes for this episode in particular are excellent. At certain times we do get very technical and we discuss a lot of images so perhaps you may want to check them out while you're listening to the podcast. You can find them on my Instagram highlights reel just if you go to the top of my Instagram and find the number corresponding to this podcast episode you'll find them there or perhaps you might want to watch this podcast on youtube where very basic videos i'll say that of myself but i do insert the images as we're discussing throughout the conversation so perhaps you might also want to check this episode out on youtube so now all that's left to do is sit back and relax as alexandra and i talk to you about the history of notre dame enjoy i think a very obvious question to start is have you ever visited notre dame I have, and I am now incredibly grateful that I have because I don't know when's the next time people are going to be able to. So yes, I've been there, I've seen it, and I'm very, very grateful that I have. When did you when did you go to see it? Um, I got a trip to Paris for my 21st birthday, and I went. Oh, snap! <laughs> so that was 10 years ago now. Mm, yeah, something similar actually. So. I I mean I went when I was 18 with my parents and you know when you're 18 you know the last thing you want to do is be on holiday with your parents never mind try and have fun yeah um, so I really didn't appreciate it and then I went back much like yourself I got gifted a, a trip to Paris for my 21st mm-hmm. and oh my goodness it was just amazing although uh, before we, re- we start with press recording I did say to you you know my, my knowledge to Notre Dame I thought was quite good but it was all very much based on the Disney movie yeah um which was, is of course, heavily based on Victor Hugo's book. Yeah. Um, but I had no idea of this, inc- this building's amazing history because I've seen it myself. And when you're there, they don't really, unless you do a tour, you have an audio guide. For me anyway, when I've been, they yeah. don't really talk you through the history. You're more just sort of, it's such an overpowering building and in, in, in yeah. the presence of it. You can't really pay attention to anything that you read or you hear yeah I I heard someone say that to really appreciate any gothic church you have to spend all day there and you have to look at every part of the building in every possible different light because there's so much to absorb that you can't spend an hour or two there and hope to pick up even a fraction of it I think that's probably true yeah, I would completely agree because even in researching this, you know, things that we're going to talk on about the damage that it's suffered at different points in its history, not just its most recent yeah. sort of obvious damage, you know, 
stretching back to French Revolution. Yeah. And there's remnants of that in the church today, which I've completely, I've never seen before. So, it, I mean, who knows if it will still be there now after the fire, but yeah. very interesting that it, um, that it wears its scars of time, if you will. Uh, it's yeah, absolutely. It does. Um, it's, I mean, I'll talk about this a little bit more later, but it's pretty well agreed upon that at this point, Notre Dame is as much a 19th century building as it is a medieval building because of all the changes that took place, especially when it was restored in the 19th century. So people tend to think of it, and this, this is one of the interesting things that sort of come up in all the discussions about it being restored now. People think about it as this Gothic monument, but really it's this living building that has been used for over 800 years as a church. And it changes according to tastes, according to needs. You know, it's kind of like your house in a way, like your house isn't just built and stays that way forever and you maintain it. You make changes, you alter things. And Notre Dame is very much like that. So it's mm. got a little bit of everything in it at this point. Yeah. Um, and beautifully put as well. It is a living, working building. Yeah. And it's, yeah, it's incredible. So I think let's get the ball rolling then. So for anyone listening who hasn't heard of Notre Dame or maybe isn't sure what Notre Dame is, can you can you answer that question for us? What is Notre Dame? Yeah, so Notre Dame is, and let me preface this by saying, obviously we're gonna talk about the fire, but before we talk about the fire, I'm gonna just talk about the building the way it was before the fire. So if I say is, it might be technically was. Mm, yeah, but. Um, I don't love talking about it in the past tense. That makes me feel very weird. So yeah. Notre Dame de Paris is a, Gothic cathedral in Paris, France. Actually, <laughs> funny enough, most churches in Paris are named Notre Dame. Notre Dame means Our Lady, aka the Virgin Mary, and a lot of churches in France are dedicated to her. Um, like, for example, the church at Chartres is Notre Dame de Chartres. So Notre Dame de Paris is one of many Notre Dames, but when you say Notre Dame, that's pretty much, you mean the one in Paris. But so yeah, it is a Gothic Cathedral in Paris, France. It was built between roughly 1163 and 1250. Um, it is probably the most famous Gothic church in the world. If you say Gothic church, in fact, Notre Dame is pretty much what most people think about. Yeah. Yeah. So it is a very, very famous Gothic church. Not the first, not the largest, even before the fire, not the best preserved, but by far the most famous and beloved, as I think we all came to learn two years ago now. Oh, of course, of course. And I love um, a really interesting point there, what you said, it's perhaps not even the best preserved because I I don't know, it's kind of like when you, you don't, re if you don't really properly look at things, I mean, in, in research for, for this podcast, I've ended up down a complete and amazing rabbit hole, I must say, of, uh, you know, restoration videos of the mm. old timber roof and things like that. And, you know, from far away, you can't really see the scars, but close up you're like whoa this has had a lot of work done to it and it's been ravaged you know with people and wars and uh, yeah it's it's an incredible building but as you said there it's a gothic cathedral so what are the key elements that make this cathedral gothic yeah so gothic was a style of architecture invented in france around 1140 um by a man named Abbot Suget of Saint-Denis. Uh, Saint-Denis was a very important abbey, uh, a monastery with royal patronage just outside Paris. Actually, as a side note, if anyone at some point ever gets to go to Paris again and you can't visit Notre Dame, 
go and visit Saint-Denis. It's only a subway ride outside of Paris. It is beautiful and it is amazing and not nearly as well known as Notre Dame, but definitely worth a visit. So I'd recommend Saint-Denis, which is the first Gothic church. Um, oh. Even though elements of Gothic had been kind of floating around for a while before that. So Gothic churches are all about height and light and weightlessness. Um, Gothic churches, they have lots of windows, they have soaring vaults, they they look like almost insubstantial in a way that they just float up to the sky. Mm. That was a big difference from style that came before, which is called Romanesque, which had some similar elements. It also had vaults, it also had arches and things like that, but it was, you know, thick walls, thick columns, smaller windows. And Gothic was all about making everything light and airy. And there was actually some kind of theological implications to this, at least according to Abbot Suje, who wrote pretty extensively about this. Um, there was a guy called the Pseudo-Dionysius, because mm -hmm. I guess no one is, I don't know if people are exactly sure who he was, but he was a theological writer who talked at length uh, in a in much earlier period about how this idea of light reflecting spirituality, reflecting heaven and bringing in light was like bringing in the rays of heaven and creating a kind of heaven on earth. And that's very much what the Gothic style taps into. You could also argue that theology is just an excuse to like bright, shiny things. And I think that'd be totally fair. <laughs> <laughs> but so, yeah, Gothic churches, uh, like I said, they have really soaring vaults. They have big windows. They have really very thin walls. And when you think about it from an engineering perspective, that's kind of crazy mm. because these churches are made of stone. Notre Dame is made of limestone. It's not light. And you have these big limestone vaults, which are really heavy, but yet you have relatively little wall to hold them up. So there are three elements of architecture that make this Gothic light airiness possible. And so the first one is the pointed arch. Um, and it's pretty obvious in really any picture you see of Notre Dame, the arch, instead of being semicircular, almost looks like it has a little, someone pinched it at the top. And that does three things. First of all, pointed arches are stronger than regular semicircular arches. They don't have as much lateral thrust. I'm gonna get technical for just a second because this is kind of important. Mm -hmm. So lateral thrust is in an arch we have, and here I am gesturing with my hands like anyone can see. Yeah. <laughs> I'm trying to so I'm recording a podcast. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so if we think of an arch, um, we have two, say, columns that go up and then form the arch. At that point where the straight columns start to curve into the arch, there's a point called the springing of the arch or the springing of the vault. And that part where it starts to curve is the weakest part. It's very likely to just bow outward and collapse. Um, and that's called lateral thrust. And a pointed arch, because of that little pinched part on top, it exerts less lateral thrust. And that means that the, the arch is stronger. And it can also be taller because it's not a perfect semicircle. You don't have to increase the width as you increase the height. So a pointed arch can be stronger, can be higher, and it needs thinner supports. So that's one important aspect of Gothic. Uh, a second one is the rib vault. 
So Notre Dame and pretty much every other Gothic church has a vaulted ceiling. Not a vaulted roof. Get back to that in a second. Mm. Has a vaulted ceiling. So if you're standing in the nave, which is like the, the main part of the church, the part where you would sit if you're going to attend a service, and you look up, you see a vaulted ceiling. Arch extended to be very, very wide, very long vault. So vaults are pretty strong, but you can't, if you have a vault and then you have, you know, walls supporting it, you can't really do anything with those walls. You can't really put a lot of windows in them because all of that length of wall is needed to support the vault. So Gothic and even Romanesque churches tend to have groin vaults, which means you take two vaults and you cross them at right angles. Mm. So now instead of having a long vault, which needs walls the whole way down, when you're crossing the vault, it's only at the points where those two vaults kind of meet that you have supports. So you can open up basically horizontally and vertically. And what a rib vault does is it goes one step further and the points at which the groin vaults intersect, you get this kind of like cross pattern if you look up at one. So rib vaults um, are reinforced along that X-shaped juncture. And that's another important aspect of Gothic, but it's funny, I actually learned recently that the jury's apparently out on whether rib vaults actually have the structural function that people used to think they did. Because apparently there are some cases in buildings that are not in great shape where the ribs of the rib vault have collapsed, but the vault itself has stayed up. So mm -hmm. rib vaults, element of Gothic, but is it functional or decorative? We're still not sure. And then the final one, and this is really, really important, is the flying buttress. So the flying buttress is a support on the outside of the church that is used to hold the vaults up. Because just like I was talking before about the spring of the arch and the lateral thrust there, a vault has the same thing, even if it's a groin vault. Those kind of side parts that start to curve are the places where the vault tends to be weak. So what flying buttresses do is they support that springing of the vault from the outside. So there's basically like piers on the outside of the building and then little like half arches that connect from those piers to the weak points on the vault and hold it in place. If you see a picture of the outside of a Gothic church, it kind of sometimes looks like a little like boat with oars. Those oar shapes are the flying buttresses and they're hugely important. Because the whole way Gothic works, the, the reason you can have these really high, really heavy vaults and then put all these huge windows in is because essentially the builders have pretty expertly channeled the weight of those vaults into some chosen areas and then reinforced them like heck. And the flying buttresses are the biggest way that they did that. That is beautifully explained, I must say. And I love that analogy of the flying buttresses as like a boat with oars. It just, it so is... And when you're looking, I mean, I'm looking at the, the images that you sent me. You sent me an incredible shot of outside of Notre Dame and then a brilliant shot straight down the nave as well. And when, yeah. you, when you're describing this, it's just, it just makes complete sense. But then again, every time I look at this, I'm in complete awe because as you've said, the walls are almost sort of skeletal. They're not these yeah. huge, big, thick stone walls. They're yeah. very elegant, they're very light, they're very spacey, but of course that's what adds to the, the sort of grandeur, the sort of heavenliness of it. And the whole point of this incredible building is to show the, the heavenliness of the Virgin Mary. And yeah. it's, just, it's a tribute to her and 
to a, I don't know, a religion that everyone's life centered around for such a long, long time. And yeah. it's an incredible, incredible building. Yeah. And something else that's amazing about Notre Dame as well is that it's incredibly decorative, as most Gothic cathedrals are. Yeah. Um, like you've mentioned, it's got incredible windows. Uh, very famously, it has three beautiful rose windows mm -hmm. and a lot of stained glass within as well. And also very heavily decorated outside as well. Yeah. Yeah, the decoration is really, really beautiful. Um, those three rose windows, they're 13th century. So they are, um, not all of the stained glass in the building is medieval. The three rose windows are. I believe one of them was like reworked in some way, but it is original um, 13th century glass and they did all survive. All three of them survived the fire. Which is just, yeah, I mean, amazing. Miracle. Uh -huh. It is a miracle. It's, it really it's, is. Oh, unbelievable. And then you also have, um, you know, like you said earlier, this is a working building. You have, you know, the incredible sort of organs and pipes as well uh -huh. that are in there. And, yeah. you know, this is someone's full-time job, but there's, there's actually three people. That's their, you know, they sort of split the work between them. And yeah. their job is to, to play the organ in yeah. Notre Dame. It's, it's an amazing, an amazing building. It really um, is. Yeah. And, but what I found really, really interesting, you know, it's this, you know, it has this incredible history, uh -huh. this grandeur. And, you know, as you said, you know, when the fire happened, it, it was a, it was a shock felt not just in Paris, around the world. I think people like collectively mourned not to sound yeah. over dramatic, but I think it's it's one of these times where when something like that happens uh -huh. and it's such a huge monumental thing, you will always remember where you were when you heard the news. Yeah. Yeah. And, absolutely. But, and for some reason, for me anyway I thought this was the only time that Notre Dame had had suffered and had and had not you know had had a terrible disaster happen to it but this isn't the case it's not always been this amazingly loved building absolutely um and it's kind of ironic too that fire and medieval churches like have a long history together um you know, before Notre Dame was built, there were other churches on the site. And I think that they had simply just become, you know, too small or too worn out or whatever. But a lot of the Gothic churches we have that survive, the only reason they were even built is because their predecessors burnt down. Like Charles Cathedral, uh, which is, I think, like maybe an hour away from Notre Dame. Um, there was a horrible fire. And that's why we have the beautiful Gothic church we have now, because the old one was almost completely destroyed in the Middle Ages. Mm, it's just yeah. so interesting and yeah. I mean it's such it's such an iconic building I mean those bell towers for example oh yeah. just you, you see the front of it and you know exactly you know exactly yeah this is not yeah. done you're quite right too about everyone sort of mourning um like I guess the summer of 2019 so you know, the less than a year after the fire, I was at like a local arts and crafts fair in my mm. town. There's a lot of local artists set up and one of them had these prints of all of these views of 
you know, different famous places around the world. And I was looking and looking for a Notre Dame one and I finally found it. And then when I went to pay him, he like even just like looked at it, the artist and was really emotional. And we started talking about it. And I, you know, I was telling him about you know, how I study Gothic architecture and, and how much it means to me. And, and it meant a lot to him too. And we literally stood there and like mourned together for a while. This guy I'd like never met before. It's really really incredible how much people love this building I well, think it's really powerful yeah. well that's it it's so powerful and it doesn't really matter what kind of religion you are as well mm -hmm. like it's just such a beautiful building and it's a part of everyone's history in, in some way it, it's a it's so important and like you said there there was that sort of it does connect people because mm. regardless of where you're coming from when you step in there you can't help but be like wow this is amazing this is just yeah incredible. yeah um, so we've spoken a little bit about sort of the origins of the cathedral and it's the key features of what a Gothic um, a Gothic cathedral or a Gothic church looks like. Yeah. And one of the things that became a topic of conversation, of course, after because of the fire was, of course, as you've said previously, the it doesn't have vaulted ceilings, a vaulted roof. It's got vaulted ceilings, but the roof yeah. isn't isn't vaulted yeah thank you because I said that and then I got so far away from it and I was like oh wait I need to come back yeah so actually I'll go really quickly through the parts of the building um so that when we start discussing like what happened to it mm. we'll have a better idea so first of all Notre Dame is a basilica the majority of Christian churches are basilicas not all of them um, but that's a, that's a form that was derived from like ancient Roman like audience halls um, so what a basilica has is it has a long nave, like I said before, that's the main part that you would stand in like if you were going to a service. And then on either side of the nave, it has two aisles. Um, then all the way at the east end, there's that rounded part that's called an apse. That is where the altar is. Um, it's at the east end in Notre Dame, it's in the east end in most churches, not all of them, but traditionally it's in the east. Um, between the nave and the apse, there's a like a crossbar called a transept, which makes it into a cross shape. Then beyond the apse around it, there is another little like aisle, sort of, it's called an ambulatory. Mm. And then beyond that, there's a series of chapels. Notre Dame also has two towers, like you mentioned before, at the west end. So that's the end that you come in at. And the towers prove to be really critical to save the building, which we'll talk about in a little bit. Then above that nave with that gorgeous groin vault that we just talked about, mm -hmm. there is, in, or was here, I'm definitely gonna say was, there was an attic. Uh, it's not something people really think about. To be honest, I didn't even really think about it much until the fire. So above the stone vault, there was uh, an attic that was made out of really, really massive, really old oak beams. Mm. And then, and that's in a, like a, a very, you know, typical pitched roof shape and it was covered in lead tiles. So if, I don't know if I gave you a picture of the exterior where you could see the roof. I think I did. Yeah, you um, did. See those greenish um, lead tiles. And then on top of that, there was a spire. Yeah. Um, yeah. So if we're going to get into it, what happened on April 15th, 2019 is that 
one of those really, really massive, really, really dry, really, really old oak beams in the attic caught on fire. And um, there's a lot of controversy about the fact that there was no fire suppression system up there. Um, I'm given to understand that some medieval buildings have added some kind of fire suppression system, like understanding that very old wood is very flammable. Notre Dame had not. It did have a fire alarm, which went off, but apparently there was some confusion about what part of the building the alarm was triggered in. So whoever went to check went to check the wrong area of the building. They didn't see anything, oh. so they just went back, and by the time the alarm went off again, it was too late. Oh, dear. Yeah, so the very old oak beams caught on fire. There was no fire suppression system. The fire spread really quickly throughout the attic, started to melt those lead tiles. Eventually, the entire attic and the entire lead roof had been consumed. Um, and then the spire, which was actually not medieval, um, it was a 19th century spire that had a like a wooden like skeleton basically with lead over it. The spire then caught on fire. The spire completely collapsed. I cannot express to you my horror watching the spire collapse on my computer because oh, that's the moment where I realized that this was not a drill. Like yeah. this was real and I didn't know it was gonna happen. The, yeah, so the spire completely collapsed and when it did, it crashed through the vault. Now, in some ways, the vaults actually did their job really perfectly. Like I said, uh, medieval buildings and fire go hand in hand. And people in the Middle Ages realized this. And that's why you had a stone vault on the inside. And then you had the flammable elements on the outside. The whole idea was that anything flammable was separated from the rest of the building by stone, which is not particularly flammable. So the attic and the roof could be consumed and leave the vault intact. And that was pretty much true. The only thing that did in that center section of the vaults was all the weight of the lead in the spire collapsing onto it. But everywhere else, the vaults held. And that's why the fire never really spread to the interior of the building. Mm. Because basically, you know, those, those medieval masons, like people in the modern era like to say that they didn't really know what they were doing, but clearly they did because exactly what they wanted to happen happened. And that's the only reason the building's still here. Yeah. And it's an incredible thing to, to think about, really. This was this building's, what, 800 plus years old? Yeah. And when it, the, the sort of original stone masonry was has been executed so perfectly that yeah. a fire in modern day times, it could still withhold it. And yeah. that's not to say, of course, that there hasn't been restoration of the building throughout its history. Of course there has. You know, it's weathered, it is stone, as we've said previously, but that in itself is incredible. And it is. The, the fact that they're able to, you know, it's it's amazing, actually. I had never, I hadn't actually looked into the sort of conservation efforts that are happening now once, you know, to repair Notre Dame to, to its original glory. Yes. Yeah. It's, it's a major, incredible operation, which just shows yeah. the best and brightest within architectural engineering, art historical, preservation, 
fields. It's it's an it's an incredible, incredible thing to witness. Terrible yeah. that it happened, mm. but this it's amazing how you you needed really skilled laborers and people who were the best at what they did to originally put it together. And now you need yeah. exactly the same team of people hundreds of years later to do exactly that. And that they're able to sort of trace back because they've really sort of turned it into this like research um, sort yeah. of based assessment as well, because although it's a terrible thing that's happened, they've, they're, they're, they've got teams of people that are able to look at the limestone, for example, that's collapsed and they can date it and try and track its location to where it was originally quarries and then ha- think about how it was brought into Paris, which they never would have been able to do yeah had this not happened yeah. so it's, it's it's teaching them more about the history of Notre Dame and there's yeah. there's still so many layers to unwrap as well absolutely um, but you know it's this huge huge operation and like you said you know it has this big lead roof and the lead mm. roof is the thing that's really causing the issues oh yeah because obviously when it burned all that lead got released into the air and they actually had to stop work for a while because the lead levels were just too high. Um, and there was all kinds of like crazy procedures that they had to do to get not just the lead out of the air, but like lead had actually gotten inside the limestone. Mm. And they had all these really high tech ways of getting it out, which kind of, I found a little hard to comprehend, but you know, it seems like they've gotten it all out now, but mm. it was definitely a big issue for a while. Well, that's it. And also, like we said, you know, there's there's conservation happening, you know, throughout Notre Dame's history. And actually, I found this really amazing video and I'll link it in the show notes below. It's quite sad, actually. So it's the Ted's conservation and curator, mm-hmm. conservator and curator of Notre Dame. I don't know when about it, it was filmed. It was definitely, definitely before the fire. So they kind of walk mm-hmm. around and they show you they do walks every few months to sort of look at the dust that's built up from people coming in so they, they so they can order cleaning crews. They take you yeah. up to the windows and they show you how the dust gets into the stone and gets into sort of the crevices of the sort of the lead lining in the windows. And they yeah. take you up into the, the wooden uh, ceiling like you just mentioned and these yeah. incredible huge wooden beams. And it's yeah. nicknamed the Forest of Notre Dame yeah. because every one beam was one tree. Yeah. It's incredible system. But essentially, this is where they talk you through that Notre Dame is a continuous building site. And actually, yeah. the spire has, has caused damage previously, which I had no idea about. So in yeah. 1929, there was this huge storm and the spire, a part of the spire fell off mm-hmm. and pierced the roof. But didn't come through the vault, but there was a lot yeah. of work to sort of uh, make that area watertight but it took a few years to get funding released which is incredible yeah. but when you yeah, think about what what one thing that really stood out for me in the fire of course terrible thing that happened was the response of aid that people gave and the, the yeah. what the government pledged and I think did um Yves Saint Laurent that the, the brand did they not pledge millions and millions of euros to get it up and running yeah you know, and it's the building has a, a whole history of being conserved. I don't know. Do you want me to talk more about that? Oh, yeah, I would love that. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. That's you know, a very, very cool part of the building's history because it definitely is a, an ongoing construction site. Like I mentioned, Notre Dame was primarily constructed between 1163 and 1251. 
Um, the high altar was consecrated in 1182, so they could start performing services in it after that. But it was constructed for almost 100 years, which is pretty common mm. in medieval buildings. But then there was always parts being changed, renovated, improved upon, um, on and on after that. And then you got to a certain point where the building started to fall into disrepair because as I'm sure many fans of art know, you had the middle ages and then you had the Renaissance and the Renaissance was like, not a big fan of the middle ages. <laughs> um, <laughs> even the high Renaissance when everybody was just into classicism everywhere, Gothic architecture, they viewed it kind of the way like we might view like photos of what we wore when we were like 14 and you're like, Oh God, why? Like that's, how the Renaissance felt about the Middle Ages. So the building, it was clearly still a very important church. It was still the Cathedral of Paris. It was still closely associated with the French monarchy, but it was no longer really like valued, or maybe I should say not yet really valued. Mm. And it started to fall into disrepair. It was also modified a lot to suit, you know, changing tastes. I, I feel like I heard a story at one point about how one of the um the entry portals on that big western facade like they just like opened it and like chopped off some of the sculpture so that like someone could ride in on like a bigger horse or something so As you do <laughs> yeah that, um one thing people don't actually know very much uh or it's not that commonly known is that notre dame and most other gothic churches would have been painted on the inside and the outside um they would not have been these like very pale stone structures that we see them as today. Um, obviously, classicism, you know, very, very into the white stone. So the building would have been whitewashed. Uh, it wasn't taken very good care of, and it started to fall into disrepair. The original spire was removed in the 18th century because it was in such bad shape that they were afraid it was going to collapse. I've seen uh, 1786 and 1792 in different places. So somewhere in the late 18th century, the spire was removed. Mm. Uh, and then you had the French Revolution. And obviously that was a problem because the revolutionaries were not really into the monarchy or religion. So it was a big problem for Notre Dame. Um, it was temporarily like reconsecrated as a temple of reason, yeah. which like, like I, I can't like, my brain can't wrap itself around that. Like, I'm not really sure what a temple of reason is, but it was a temple of reason. Uh, you mentioned before the all the gorgeous sculpture on the outside, and there's so much of it. And some of it has royal iconography because, you know, it was a building that was always associated with the French monarchy. Um, also, there were some, you know, images of like Old Testament kings. So if you look on that entry facade, um, like above the doors, there's like a solid line of sculpture. That's called the Gallery of Kings. And there were all Old Testament kings depicted there. Um, the revolutionaries smashed all those statues. Um, they've since been remade. So those are not medieval statues you see there today. Uh, and interestingly enough, in 1977, there was some kind of excavations going on and they discovered like in a pit, the heads of all the original kings from the Gallery of Kings, and they're now in the Cluny Museum in Paris. Um, so yeah, lots of bad things happened during the revolution. The building became a church again in 1802. It was in really bad shape by then. 
um, actually Napoleon had his coronation there and apparently they had to like hang wall hangings to disguise how bad the church <laughs> looked at that point. Um, there was another revolution in 1830 and it underwent more damage. Um, so Notre Dame was in pretty bad shape until the whole Gothic revival movement started. Um, so that was in the 19th century. It had a lot to do with the rise of ro romanticism. It had a lot to do with like rising French nationalism. Um, King Louis-Philippe in the 1830s was very, very into understanding and, and celebrating French history. I believe the, the Napoleons, uh, Napoleon and his brother, cousin, I never remember, but Napoleon and Napoleon III were both very into French history. And this is when Gothic started to come back into fashion. Um, this is when you get the beginnings of like the survey of French monuments, the restoration movement, the Monument Historique um, is a, a government organization or quasi-government organization dedicated to preserving these monuments. And that's when people started to care about Notre Dame again. This is when Victor Hugo wrote Notre Dame de Paris. When you started having all these, you know, Gothic revival architecture, Gothic literature, and people started to be very, very interested in the Middle Ages again. And so clearly this really important cathedral in the middle of Paris, you know, people were starting to realize that it wasn't really being taken care of the way it should be. And then eventually there were two men who were tasked with restoring it. And so they were Eugene Emmanuel Viollet-le-Duc and Jean-Baptiste Lassoux. Viollet-le-Duc is the one that we all know because Lassoux was involved in the planning and in the early area, the early period of the restoration, but he died before the restoration was complete. So it's mainly Viollet-le-Duc we know today. He was an architect. He was very, very interested in medieval monuments and he did a lot of restorations. He restored uh, Notre Dame, Saint-Chapelle, Saint-Denis, um, the medieval like city of Carcassonne, the uh, uh, Chateau de Pierrefonds, all these great medieval French monuments. He had a hand in restoring them. And between 1844 and 1864, he restored Notre Dame. Uh, he restored it on a, on a grand scale. Um, not only did he, you know, repair, damage, have sculptures re and stained glass reproduced to replace what had been lost, but he also made some pretty big changes. And they're actually very controversial, and they have been ever since. Uh, he put up the new spire. He reworked some of the windows. He reworked some of the flying buttresses. He put up um, a whole bunch of new grotesques. Um, so grotesques and gargoyles they're one of my favorite parts of Gothic architecture. Yeah. Um, they're those funny looking little people, animal, monster creatures that you see on so many Gothic buildings. And so originally, like the iconography of gargoyles is still very contentious. No one has really ever come up with any explanation that's been accepted even by a majority. But gargoyles in the medieval period, they were basically really fancy drain spouts. Um, they'd have there'd be a hole through them with a pipe and then water, like rainwater would come out of their mouths. Mm. Um, but why they're shaped like these weird little monsters, we're still not quite sure. Yeah, well, I know I know why they're called gargoyles, though, because yes. it's uh, a play on the French word to gargle. And when the rain yeah. ran through them, it sounded like a like a gargling noise. So they decided yeah. to make it this yeah. monstrous 
Yeah, because um, I know, like, even in the Middle Ages, there was, like, controversies over, like, why do you do this? Yeah. You know, some medieval clergymen felt that it was very inappropriate. Others didn't. And we're still not sure why, you know, why they were shaped like monsters, why the, some of them look like they could be demons, what's going on there. It's something I'm really interested in, but there are no answers so far that I found. But Viollet le Duc made a whole bunch of new ones. Um, they're not all technically gargoyles. A lot of them are just like statues of funny looking little creatures. They don't have any function. Um, but there's a whole bunch of them up and down those two big Western towers. And um, there's one of them, I, I gave you a picture of this liege. Um, I believe that's French for the vampire. Um, and he became really famous. Um, but Ville le Duc did a lot of stuff like that. He didn't have the same ideas about preservation we do today. Like right, you know, today, for the most part, we would look to, to be a, as uninvasive as possible. We would look to put things back the way they were, not touch anything more than, than we should. Viole Le Duc didn't see it that way. And I found a quote by him that I think is very interesting. He said, to restore an edifice means neither to maintain it, nor to repair it, nor to rebuild it. It means to establish it in a finished state, which may in fact never have actually existed at any given time. So idealism yeah. and fantasy, Viollet le Duc was okay with those things. He changed a lot. One of, actually, I think the most interesting things he changed was in the interior of the building. If you look, I don't know if you can see it in the picture I gave you, but if you, you poke around photographs of the nave of Notre Dame, you can see it pretty easily. How on the inside, in some areas, there's like a row of one window, like a one like one row of windows and some there are two. There are those little round windows okay. and then a smaller window above it. Mm -hmm. And then in some cases, there's just one larger window. So basically what happened is when Notre Dame was originally being planned, it had what's called a four-part elevation. We have the, the nave arcade, which is this, the arches that get you from the nave into the aisles. Above that, you have a gallery, which is a series of smaller arches. Above that, originally, they had what's called a triforium, which is a smaller gallery, like probably not even big enough for a person to really stand comfortably in, but it would have a buttressing function. Mm. And that triforium had a series of little mini rose windows in front of it. And then on the top, you had a clear story, which was a row of windows. So it's what we call four-part elevation, which was kind of what you did in 1163 when Notre Dame got started. But very quickly in, like I mentioned before, that quest to make things hot, bigger and lighter and airier and more windows, less wall, builders at places like Sharp started eliminating either that gallery or that triforium. So you had a three-part elevation. You had a nave arcade, you had a gallery or a triforium, and then you had much larger clear story windows. So instead of having two smaller windows, you'd have a big one. Notre Dame, you know, in the hundred years that it took to construct it, this four-part elevation went out of fashion. So the builders went back and they took out those, ro those mini rose windows and they took out the triforium and they made 
a single larger clear story. So one larger window per, you know, in a row. And that's what the church looked like. But when Viollet le Duc was, you know, do, going about his restoration, he found evidence of that triforium with those little circular windows that were originally there. And he made the decision to, in some places, I guess the places where it had that had originally had that structure before they changed it, to put it back that way with that four-part elevation so people could see what it originally looked like and then what they changed it to. So in a way, he sort of like went back and reversed the builder's decision to kind of update the structure as they were going. Oh. And it was kind of clever of him to discover that, you know, Ville le Duc, he, he knew his medieval buildings inside and out. I mean, he made studies, he made sketches, he knew what he was doing. And I think he had a lot of love for these buildings. He just had some very different ideas about how to do them justice than we might have today. Hmm. Yeah, and that's uh, actually factored kind of at times heavily into discussions about how Notre Dame should be rebuilt now. Oh, because really? Because Duc altered it, you know, kind of heavily in a way in his day. So if he restored it and he made changes, a lot of people have argued, why shouldn't we also update it when we restore it now? And that's the whole thing, the whole argument behind, you know, what's the new spire going to look like? What's going to happen on the roof is the fact that the spire that burnt down was 19th century. I don't know if it's not like as radically different from the medieval spire as like some of the designs that were proposed, but it wasn't a reconstruction of what was there. It was something new. Mm. So if he added his mark, a lot of people have argued, why shouldn't we? And so it's the fact that the building's been modified over time that has kind of opened up the door for people to be like, let's put a swimming pool up there because, <laughs> you know, like it's sort of to a certain degree already been done. That's such an, that's such an interesting point. I had absolutely no idea. I, I never even thought about that. I mean, I knew it, it had been heavily changed throughout the 19th yeah. century for lots of, you know, different reasons. And this, uh, period in time you know the 25 years that you're talking about here when um you know Gilles le Duc um was or Ville le Duc sorry was um pushing forward with these changes because we can of course we can recreate it I think you know in modern day terms there, there's been enough documentation made there's enough sort of visual aids to help us there but yeah I, I don't know it would be oh gosh it almost the art historian in me is kind of like oh gosh but everyone knows it you know since photography was invented everyone knows it as this yeah as, as as the spire is looking like this and it was such a going back to what you said earlier like gut-wrenching moment when when it fell yeah and you kind of just thought it was the, at the point when you saw the spire fail that you were you're kind of like oh this isn't good like this isn't yeah like we're lucky if it if it's still stuck. I honestly thought when I heard about the fire I was yeah. on my way to a pub actually to meet my French flatmate. And when we got oh. there, I was like, wow. I am so sorry. And she's like, it's just awful. And yeah. my and when when that happened, I was just sort of like, this is gonna burn down. We're gonna lose this forever. Yeah. I you know, until the spire fell down, I was like, okay, you know, there's a fire, it's on the roof, 
it's not inside maybe it'll be okay but yeah man when the spire came down i was like oh this is real this is like not a joke mm. and yeah i think it just kind of hit home like the severity of it but as you said you know there's amazing sort of conservation and restoration going on um the swimming pool thing is news to me <laughs> it's amazing to think that really they that we have the ability and the skills now to to recreate it or you know more importantly though fireproof it so this so something like this will never ever happen again within yeah. Notre Dame's lifetime um yeah can you tell us a little bit um about other things that are happening with the restoration I was listening to this incredible talk about you know we're talking about the limestone and how the um the particles of lead got in, can get into the limestone and how everything's had to be cleaned before re restoration but also limestone is this incredibly you know strong sturdy brick and it's it's the foundations and and sort of tool of choice if you will for a lot of sort of French important buildings you know the Louvre not the yeah the Louvre for example is also made yeah. from limestone but what I didn't know is depending on the heat of things so limestone you know to get very very technical limestone can melt at 800 degrees celsius but from anything yeah. and then it just crumbles into a powder which has happened in places because the fire was so hot but yeah. from anything above 300 it then starts to although it doesn't crumble it starts to yeah. alter how the bricks are are formed and the strength of the bricks and then some of the bricks have been really really badly water damaged because it's they're, yeah. they're porous because of the fire it's it's just incredible it is yeah uh, that that is has been kind of you know one of the big concerns um because uh, if you if you think back to the, the aftermath of the fire the you know the roof was gone there was a hole in the vault um it was i, I know at one point the firefighters essentially gave up on the roof and they realized they couldn't save the roof at that point but if the fire spread to the towers evidently so there are bells in those towers mm. and i guess they have wooden supports and there was the fear that if the fire spread to the towers and consumed those wooden supports and the bells fell the towers were going to fall and then the whole building was going to fall yeah it was when they decided to you know, forget about the roof and save the towers. That's really when they save the building. And I know, you know, um, having researched pretty extensively right after it happened that those Paris firefighters were so heroic. Mm. I mean, I think pretty much with like no regard for like their own safety. They were, people were going in there, taking artwork out, taking relics out, trying to save going up in those towers I just I mean god bless them mm. they're they're the only reason the building's still here yeah I do think and, this is a good point to um you know something from a, a museum sort of background you know all mm. and it's important for people that that maybe don't know this all important buildings and all important museums like Notre Dame like the British Museum like the Louvre all these places have a disaster plan in, in place. So essentially yeah. when something happens, for example, if a flood happens or a fire happens, they have mm -hmm. a list of get to these things. These are the most important things, get them out. But there's only certain people that 
if they're on shift, these are the people that go. But if they're not on shift, these are the people that go. But like you said, firefighters took it upon themselves to be like, let's get as much as we can out. Because it just, again, just shows you the, like, without even being religious or art historical or, you know, a fan of architecture, you know these things are important. And I think when things like this happen and the world feels a hit like this, I just don't understand how people can still continue to say culture and history and art and architecture aren't very important in compared to the grand scheme of things because yeah, look at the reaction. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely, yeah. I completely agree with that. I mean, it hit a nerve, a nerve that none of us knew we had. And that what I remember is that um, gut-wrenching, oh gosh, I could wake well up thinking about it. It's that Quasimodo. Um, fr- oh, so, cu- oh, why would you bring that uh, up? Yes, cut yes. to damn. It was like, oh my God, oh my God. Like it was just gut-wrenching, gut-wrenching. Yeah. Okay. I'm going to talk about more things and, and yeah. not think about that. Um, yeah. But so you asked me about stuff going on with the restoration. Yes. So I was going to say, yeah. And I, then I got really off topic. Um, I've done that a couple of times. Um, so yes, in the, in the aftermath of the fire, the roof was gone. There was a hole in the vault. Um, there was a, people didn't even realize at this point that there was all the lead in the air. They'd find that out soon enough uh, though the you know there's a tons of debris on the inside fortunately it seems like the inside of the building was in pretty good shape there's that photograph i included it it's like really iconic now of all of that debris just sitting there and then that like baroque pieta statue oh, yeah just there it's wow um but yeah that's where they were at and people couldn't even go inside the building for a while because just nobody was sure how structurally sound it was um, they were having like little like robots go in there to like, you know, clean stuff up and take probes and whatever. Um, the medieval stained glass survived, the organ survived, the art survived. Um, there was a bunch of statues of apostles on the spire, including um, one of the apostles had the face of Ville Le Duc, apparently. Oh. They had been. Yeah, they had, he's the one that's like looking up like semi in alarm. Um, they had been removed for, um, to be restored just days before the fire. So they survived, the weather vane survived, a, a lot of random stuff. Um, but they weren't sure how structurally sound the building was. Mm. It's exactly what you said, you know, the stone looks okay, but how strong is it? We don't really know. Um, and then that led to a lot of kind of <laughs> sensationalized media coverage about the building's going to fall down at any minute. I actually personally, like, because I wrote an article about what was going on with Notre Dame right after the fire. And then I wrote another one one year after. And in both cases, I was very, very frustrated by the sensationalism of the way that the fire was covered in the media. Everyone wants to be like, the building's going to fall down in any minute. Not quite sure that that's true, Mm. but there were definitely structural concerns. My understanding is that no one can definitively say right now that it's stable, but no scans that they've taken or no readings they've taken 
have indicated that it's not. Yeah. So we can't say it's not that we can't say it's okay, but there's no real indication at this point that anything is wrong. Um, there was also a lot of concern because of some scaffolding, which you can see in a, if you see a lot of the yes, pictures yeah. after the fire. Yeah. So there was actually restoration going on at Notre Dame when the fire took place. Now, whether that played any role, we don't know. Um, we don't know if, you know, a workman dropped a cigarette and didn't realize it wasn't totally extinguished or, or something like that, or if the fire and the restoration had nothing to do with each other, but they were working on the spire. Um, obviously, no workmen were up there when the fire started, but they had been working on the spire and they had erected this scaffolding around it. And in the, with the heat of the fire, all the scaffolding, it got all twisted and deformed and like melted together. So it's now basic, or it was at that point, basically this giant hunk of deformed metal that like no longer really had anything to support it and was just like chilling out above like the hole in the vault. Mm. People were very concerned about that. Um, they were concerned that that made the vaults even more unstable. They were concerned that the process of getting it down was going to disrupt the vaults. So that was a big area of concern. Um, there was a lot of concern about uh, things like on the, the facades of the two transepts where two of the rose windows are, there was no longer anything behind them because the roof was gone. So they had to remove some of the stained glass. They had to shore those things up. They had to basically make sure that the building was like now better supported. And I, I believe that's an ongoing process. Um, they did finally, thank God, I was very relieved to learn that by the end of last year, they had succeeded in removing all of that scaffolding, which was like a big milestone for the building to overcome. Yeah. Because uh, that scaffolding is no longer a threat. Um, so then I know what they've been doing now is they have been adding all kinds of braces to sure things up. Because when I, like, I mentioned when I was talking about the way that Gothic buildings stay up, you may have sort of gotten the sense that there are very finely tuned instruments or delicate ecosystems or whatever metaphor you prefer. And if you eliminate one thing, now all the forces are out of balance. Yeah. So, you know, the vault now, it's definitely weak because there's a hole in it. And you have the flying buttresses, you know, pushing in to counteract some of that lateral thrust that it's not really getting so much anymore because the vault is weak. If the vault were to collapse further, then there'd be even less lateral thrust. So the concern was now that the building would cave in on itself. So there's all kinds of supports that they had to add, or, and I think they're still in the process of adding them to make sure that you know the flying buttresses are not going to press too far in on the weakened vault. Lots of stuff like that going on. And at last I heard, um, they're looking for old enough and tall enough oaks to replace that attic. Mm. That's looking for limestone that's gonna match the limestone that they have to repair. Um, so that seems like a good sign. Yeah. Um, they're still shoring up the building, but also starting to think ahead you know, to reconstructing it, which obviously then opens up all of these things about, well, what's it going to look like? Well, that's it. And I think, you know, that's just, we're going to have to wait and see. But this this isn't going to be, you know, a five-year project. This is, 
no matter what anyone says. Yeah, <laughs> this will be 10 years, 15 years. I mean, of course, COVID-19, you know, there was lockdowns in France. They couldn't work on the building. Um, yeah. There's a team of, I think, 200 people. I actually found a really great ABC News segment that shows you sort of 18 months on. So it was released in January and it kind of shows you their reporter going in literally a few days after the fire with no safety equipment on because, of course, they didn't know about the, the sort of the lead in the air. And then yeah. him going back in a year and a half later. And it, it gives you a really great before and after uh, yeah. some shots and I'll leave a link to that in, in the show notes below for anyone that's interested in seeing the the developments of it but it's safe to say they're making progress and there is hope Absolutely. and I think that's the best thing about it is no one has lost hope no one has come out and said it's a disaster tear it down let's start again yeah but yet again if you read some of the media coverage like you wouldn't necessarily get that perspective fully mm-hmm. um so yeah, you know, I try to sort through it to get to, you know, what's really going on. And I think it's, you know, maybe I'm still holding my breath a bit, but I think we're in a lot better shape than maybe we thought we were going to be. Well, that's it. I mean, for me, like like I said previously, I just can't believe it's still standing. I can't believe there's, I can't yeah. believe the rose windows survived. Like they are within kissing distance, if you will, of of the tower falling down. Yeah, fine, fine. It's it's a miracle. It's amazing. Alexandra, I have absolutely loved talking to you. Thank you so much for, well, like I said previously, I thought I, I had a good understanding of the history. Absolutely not. This has been a thrill to, to you know, speak to you about, to learn about. And yeah, I, I know this is going to be such a popular episode because the world loves Notre Dame. Yeah. Yeah, I, I'm really glad. I, I hope everyone really enjoys it. And it's kind of interesting, too. We didn't even get it, get into it. And, and that's okay, because it's a whole separate conversation. But this idea of how Notre Dame has become this building everybody loves. Mm. And I mean, part of it went back from the beginning, but a lot of it really only came about in the 19th century. Because in one of the books I was reading, rereading, whatever, in preparation for this, I, I was seeing a lot of talk and I hadn't really thought about this before about the recon the 19th century restoration of Notre Dame coinciding with the advent of photography and how all of these artists would come to the construction site even and photograph the the work and photograph the building and photograph themselves you know hanging out you know in the towers. And then you had artists like Charles Marion who did that lovely print of the Srige that I included in the images. You know, when he would come to the site and he would, you know, sketch the grotesques and sketch the building and then make them into these prints and they spread. And, and so much of the love of Notre Dame in a lot of ways comes from artists responding to that 19th century restoration and I think that that is just the coolest thing ever. Yeah and I think that leads on very very nicely to ask the penultimate question of the podcast which is why do you think art is important? Well I like to say that art history is the closest I'm ever going to get to time travel except it's safer and what I mean by that is that through art 
we can experience all different cultures and times and places and perspectives. And, you know, if you're looking at historical art, you can see, get some idea of what life was like, how people viewed things so long ago, it's hard to even imagine. If you're looking at contemporary art, you can kind of see the world through other people's eyes, see it through the perspective of the artist who created it. It doesn't really matter if it's painting, sculpture, architecture, printmaking, abstract, figurative, it doesn't really matter what it is. You know, we look at art and we get a little idea of how somebody else sees the world. And I think that especially, you know, right now our world could use a lot more of seeing things from other people's point of view. And I think that art is really great at letting us do that without even realizing it. Oh my gosh, I love that. And I've never thought of that for art history. You know, it is a way of time traveling. It totally is. It's so important. Oh my gosh, beautifully, beautifully answered. And yeah, just like what you said, you know, Notre Dame is an embodiment of why art is important, why history matters, why these things, even if subliminally, hold a place in your heart because everybody knows yeah. Notre Dame, even if you've never been there, you have some idea yeah. of it. And it would just, yeah, the world would just be a poorer place without it. And I think having that threat of almost losing it has just only increased everyone's love for this incredible place. Absolutely. Yeah, I bet you there's a lot of people, like I, I've always known I love Notre Dame, but I bet you there's a lot of people who didn't really realize it. Mm, absolutely, or completely took it for granted. So for example, my, my sister actually lives in Paris. She's been living in Paris for about 10 years now. And oh, wow. she, cool. uh, I think she's only visited Notre Dame once in that entire time. And that was when I dragged her. Um, yeah. And I think it's classic when you live in a city and it's there and you just, you know, you sort of take for granted that it's there. And then when it happened, there was this guilt of, oh my gosh, I can't believe I haven't appreciated this. This is this beautiful thing that we almost, yeah, it's, it's amazing how from disaster you you realize things and um, it builds hope but also relationships like you said that, that that gentleman that you bought that print from you know it it bonds people and I think yeah. Notre Dame is is that without sounding too sort of fluffy it's such an important yeah. building yeah across the board Alexandra I have loved loved talking to you thank you so much for coming on to the podcast I think my final question is where can people connect with you and find you because you you also write as well like you said. You can find my website online at ascholarlyskater.com and I'm going to spell that because it's a little bit much. A-S-C-H-O-L-A-R-L-Y-S-K-A-T-E-R.com and that is my website where you can find lots of stuff I've written about Notre Dame, about medieval art, about all kinds of other things, about art books I've loved, basically just sort of whatever art I'm into today, you can find it on there. You can also follow A Scholarly Skater on Facebook. Amazing. And I will leave links to that in the show notes below. Thank you so, so much. I've loved having you on. Thank you. I've really, really enjoyed this. Thank you so much. No, of course. 
And there you have it, the end of another episode of the Joe's Art History Podcast. Once again, thank you so, so much to Alexandra for coming on and speaking so brilliantly and passionately about Notre Dame. I think you'll agree that was a brilliant episode and Notre Dame has such a rich history and we've really only scratched the surface. It was very much like a whistle-stop tour. There's so much information and resources in the show notes. There's some excellent videos that I found that give you a very brief overview of Notre Dame. I also linked the video that I mentioned about the conservator and the curator that go and show you the ceiling of Notre Dame before it burns down. It's, oh, it's quite haunting but a very, very interesting watch, as well as updates about what's happening now in the restoration after the fire of 2019. If you've enjoyed listening to today's episode, please do let us know. You can contact me, joesarthistory at gmail.com, or you can speak to me via my Instagram, at joesarthistory. And while you're there, why not give me a wee follow as well? Alexandra's links will be in the show notes below, but please do check her out. She is an incredible writer. She also writes for Daily Art magazine, as well as having her own website which and her Instagram, which again, I will link below. If you have enjoyed this episode and while listening, you think, hey, I know someone that would like to listen to this, please do pass it on. It would be brilliant to get as much people listening to the podcast as possible. All the images that we discussed throughout the podcast can be viewed via my website or my Instagram, which is at Joe's Art History or my website www.joesarthistory.com. This podcast can also be viewed on YouTube and you can listen and watch along with subtitles. And although the videos are a little bit basic, I do insert the images that we're talking about as we speak about them. So do feel free to check me out there. And the whole back catalogue of the podcast is also on YouTube in video format. Finally, I have been your host, Joe McLaughlin, your resident art historian, as always, on the Joe's Art History Podcast. Thank you so, so much for listening. And I look forward to welcoming you next time. Until then, keep learning. And remember, art is for all. Bye.